If you won a billion dollars, how would your life change? I don't know how much money you have in your bank account today. If you wake up tomorrow and there there is a thousand million dollars, tax-free, no restrictions, no requirements, cash is yours to spend however you like, how would your life change? Maybe it'd take a couple of days to process it, to start thinking about it, to decide whether you're going to tell people or not. Apparently that's something that people have to do when they win large amounts of money. What would you do? Would you quit your job? I mean, you don't need an income anymore after all, do you? You can just invest your billion dollars and, I mean, at a modest 5% return every year, you'd be getting $50 million a year to spend. So would you go on a buying spree, buy a house, a car, a boat, a motorbike, a small island? You could really just about afford anything. Would you travel? Set aside all the cares of your life and just take off, spend your days on a golden beach somewhere? Would you set your kids up, your parents, your family, your friends who are doing it tough, make sure they're looked after? Would you pursue philanthropy and give yourself over to making the world a better place? Would, would you change your relationships? Would you get out of your current circumstances? How would your life change? Well, to put it a different way, If you had the resources to pursue whatever it is that you wanted, to seek out satisfaction in whatever you desired, what would it be? What is it about your current life that you are dissatisfied with? What would you do to seek meaning and purpose in your life? Now, it's a question that few of us have the time and perhaps the inclination to uh, to consider. Um, Most of us just live day by day and get by with whatever it is that we're doing. We don't stop to think about these kind of deep-seated questions. Motivational speakers, or maybe they occasionally, they they use big words like uh, go and find whatever it is that you are uniquely equipped for or um, or, or vibrantly passionate about or supremely, uh, whatever it is. But it's a question that we need to ask. If we are going to do more in life than just Get through the day, day to day. What gives life lasting meaning? Now, one man had that opportunity. He had the wealth at his disposal. He had the million dollars, the billion dollars in the bank. He had the wisdom, the the savvy, the, the street smarts, the understanding of the world to set out and ask that very question. Where can meaning and purpose be found. Lasting value. Now, last week, as we considered this very question, we saw the beginning of this man's answer. As he looked at all the things around him, everything under the sun, the world as he could see it, he summarised it all with just one word. Meaningless. Futile. A chasing after the wind. Vapour. Like your, your foggy breath on a cold morning. You, huff, you huff it out and it's there for a moment and then it's gone. A mist that is here and is gone. What lasts? What matters? And he asks this question time and again throughout this book that we are studying. He asks the question, what does a person gain for all his efforts that he labours at under the sun? 
For everything that you put yourself through in life, getting up day after day after day just to, to work for the man, to care for people who don't particularly like you, to, to do your bit as a civic, as a, as a member of society. What's the gain? What's the bottom line? What do we get out of it? And he sets out to explore the world under the sun. That little phrase is very important. What's the world like if we didn't have God, if there was no reference to God, if all that mattered was matter? Now, you might be somebody who is unconvinced about the existence of God, who thinks that this world is, this universe is all there is, matter is all there is. And I think you would do very well to pay attention to this man's experiment because he sets out to say, well, what can be found? Is there meaning? Is there purpose? See, he puts it in these words. Now I'm reading out of the Bible. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're reading chapter 1 and verse 12 at the moment. He says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. See, first, this man says to himself, Solomon says, well, what about wisdom, knowledge, understanding? Not just knowing facts about the world, but understanding how it works. If I set out to gain knowledge and understanding and wisdom of the world, will I find this meaning? Will I find the purpose? Will I find something that will help me feel like my life has lasting value? And his summary, well, life is a burden, it's a miserable task that we have. And really wisdom doesn't achieve it. For there are some things that just cannot be worked out. We live in an age that is very optimistic about the human achievement, our ability to discover truth. In an age where seemingly all it's going to take is enough time enough science, enough research. If we apply ourselves in the right way for enough time, we humans can and will discover everything. Whether it's a perfect understanding of the human brain or, or quantum physics or the deepest reaches of the ocean and what lays down there or outer space and what can be found, whether it's history or... Very optimistic about our abilities. But it's not true. There are some things that cannot be worked out. It isn't just a matter of time. We are limited. We are creatures. We are inside this creation. In, uh, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this point is illustrated uh, quite absurdly and a little bit funny. As, uh, as Arthur Dent discovers that the, uh, the, the supreme life force, life, the supreme beings on Earth aren't human beings. In fact, it's mice. And uh, in, in a rather uh, ironic twist of fate, mice are running a lab experiment on us. The Earth is itself a giant computer, a giant science experiment designed to give an answer to the question of life, the universe and everything. And after seven million years of processing, finally the answer spits out. And the answer is very famously, everyone at home shouting it at the TV right now, 42 
And he goes, well, hang on, that what, what, what? And they realize they don't know the question. So they set up an even bigger computer, an even bigger experiment that runs for another 7 million years. And it spits out the question. And the question is, what is 6 times 9? Which doesn't give you the answer, 42 to start with. And Arthur Dent says in the face of that, I always knew there was something fundamentally wrong with the universe. Now, okay, it's a little bit funny. It's a little bit absurd, but it captures that moment that as we gaze out, we realize we cannot find it all. I mean, just think about this for a moment. For all of our technology, for all of our advances, for all of our modern day values and progress, why can't we get rid of selfishness, of of greed, of violence? Why can't we have effective government? Why are there still people in the world who are starving, let alone living in poverty? Gaining wisdom will not bring us the answers. See the summary that Solomon arrives at? I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned, what did he learn about it all? That this too is a chasing after the wind. With much sorrow, with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. All that he saw as he learnt more and more and more and more was how empty the world is. How full of grief and sorrow. The philosopher David Hume, it seemed like the more that he engaged in philosophy, the more ideas he thought of, the greater his wisdom and his knowledge of the world, the more he spent his time drinking beer and playing backgammon. Because the more he realised the emptiness of it. What's the point? The smarter he got, the world just seemed empty. No, wisdom doesn't do it. But what about pleasure then? Well, if we can't, if if learning stuff is no real point, let's just go and eat, drink and be merry, right? Well, Solomon tried that too. I said to myself, go ahead and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. Off he went. I mean, he had had the means, he had the wealth. Now, pleasure is not bad necessarily, right? He, He went and tried it all. Whatever it is that you can imagine might be very pleasurable. Whatever it is you can imagine you would love to do with a billion dollars, he did it. He tried it. I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. Had a grass folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the days of their lives. See, he could see what was pleasurable. He could see what was lovely to do. I mean, pleasure is good. It's not bad. But his conclusion still was it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it's madness, about pleasure. What does it accomplish? It's fun right now, but I'm going to be bored again soon. It's delicious in my mouth. I'll be hungry again tomorrow. It took my mind off my worries for a moment, but they will return very soon. No, pleasure didn't achieve it. And we do well to take that to heart. Because we seem as a culture to be lost in this pursuit of hedonism where our own pleasure is the ultimate goal. But really all that we are doing in that pursuit is burying our head in the sand 
trying to somehow dull the pain of the reality. No, wisdom didn't find meaning and purpose. Pleasure didn't find it. But what about great achievements and pursuing things of, of beauty and fineness, art and creation, aesthetics, relationships, men, women? What, what about the pursuit of good things in life? Solomon tried that too. I increased my achievements, he says. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants. I had slaves who were born in my house. I owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure. I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. He tried it all. Whatever pleasurable thing it is that you can imagine, whatever great achievement it is that you, you think that might bring you that satisfaction and that meaning, he tried it. I, I quite enjoy watching the BBC show Grand Designs. Uh, I don't know if you've ever come across it. It's a, it's a show about architecture. There you go. Maybe I'm getting a bit old. Uh, a show that follows people as they build their houses. And because it's a show about architecture, inevitably they always speak about these buildings in very lofty terms. The people going about building it always talk about it as their, their life's ambition or, or their crowning achievement. Right? Very high ideals. This thing that they are building is what's going to bring them a meaning and purpose and it's going to solve their problems and it's going it to just propel them onto victory in the next stage of their life. And it's, it's all very upbeat as they set their sight on this new architectural design and building and house. And it's going to be marvellous. And so it's extremely sad how often the show ends in brokenness. Relationships break down, bankruptcies, disappointments, And great achievements, they're not going to bring us meaning. They're not going to give us lasting purpose. In some ways, Solomon is the ultimate episode of Grand Designs. Thirteen years he spent to build a magnificent palace set in a forest. I can't even imagine the wonder of it. As he went out to find the fine things in life, women, I mean, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Gents, that's three birthdays every day that he had to remember. I mean, I, I, honestly, I don't know if I could remember names, let alone birthdays with that many. The billion dollars and everything it can buy you, Solomon had it and he tried it. And the result, the conclusion was this, when I considered all that I had accomplished... And what I had laboured to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a chasing of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now Solomon's not setting out to mount an argument. This, this isn't a, a logical progression that he's trying to convince us. He's telling us his story, his experience. 
It's a very familiar story. The story of the new shiny thing that we get excited by, that we think will be the next thing. And not long after it has arrived into our lives, it's already dull, old, forgotten. Can you remember the last thing you were excited about? You looked forward to it, you planned for it, you saved for it, maybe you had to sacrifice to get it. And where is it now? Under a pile of dusty books, lost, forgotten. We renovate our homes and then we get to the end of the renovation and oh, we have to renovate again. The walls are dirty again, the kitchen's old. It's dated. We have to extend. You know what? I think we should sell and move and go somewhere else. And Food, technology, fashion, even our kids. Even our kids can become this sort of thing where we get consumed by the next thing they are going to achieve, the next concert, the next sporting match, the next exam that they're going to achieve, the next award they're going to receive. And as soon as we get to that one, we've got to move on to the next one. And always in the search for something that will last, never finding it. (laughs) We think that by seeking the next thing, we can ignore that deep-seated reality that in the end, death is the great leveller. Death is the thing that makes it all futile. See, as Solomon continues, he says, I turned to consider wisdom as madness and folly, for what will the king's successor be like? He will do what has already been done. And I realized there is an advantage to wisdom over folly. There is an advantage of light over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. But I also knew that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? I said to myself, this also is futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the fool? In the end, whatever it is that we set out to achieve, whatever we accomplish, wisdom, pleasure, great buildings, relationship, whatever it might be, the fool dies just like the wise person. I mean, you think for a moment, right? What do these three people have in common? What do Albert Einstein, famous, I think you know him, Edwin Hubble, right? very famous astrophysicist, uh, Bertrand Russell, philosopher, what do they all have in common? They're very smart. They influenced our world, great impact, known names and... All dead. For themselves, for who they are, they're gone. And maybe they've had a legacy, it might have lasted until now, but in a thousand years, ten thousand years, a hundred thousand years, do you think they'll be remembered? And they are just as dead as the dumbest person who ever lived. Someone who never read a book in their life, someone who's made no contribution to anything, someone who just sat on the couch, watched TV all day. Just as dead. Now Solomon says there is benefit in wisdom. There is benefit in being somebody who understands the world and lives well in it. But in the end, death, the house of mourning, is the great leveller. And so he concludes, Therefore I hated life, 
because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for everything is futile and a chasing after the wind. Solomon had the billion dollars. He had the resources to try it all. Whatever it is that you think may be just outside of your reach, and it would be the thing that gives you the meaning and the purpose. Solomon tried it. And his conclusion was that it didn't work. Wisdom under the sun in the end is futile, a chasing after the wind. What about if there was another sort of wisdom? A wisdom not found in the creation, but a wisdom from the creator. A wisdom, very importantly, that lasts beyond the grave, that could see us through the great leveller, that would truly give us a meaning and a purpose that would matter because it would last. In the Bible, one of the writers, a man named Paul, wrote a letter to one of the early Christian churches in a place called Corinth. And he talked about that exact idea. He wrote these words. It is written, I will, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? He's picking up on that same idea as Ecclesiastes, as Solomon did. Our own wisdom in the end seems like foolishness. The, the best that we can come up with comes to nothing in the face of death. No, but rather, Paul continues, For since in God's wisdom the world didn't know God through wisdom, that is, we, we can't think ourselves to God, we can't find it for ourselves, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. That is, there is a message, a word, a teaching, if you like, a revelation, a wisdom that God gives that can save those who believe it, that can save them out of the consequences of ignoring God, including a life of futility. It's a message that looks foolish. To our eyes, it, it, we would never have thought it. It looks silly, but it is the wisdom from God. And that message, Paul says, is this. The Jews ask for signs, the Greek, the Greek seek wisdom, right? Different people want to find their own way. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, for everyone, this is a message for everyone, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness stronger than human strength. There is a message that can save you out of a life of futility. And the message is quite simple in two words. Christ crucified. Jesus sacrificed. A message that sounds foolish, but is God's wisdom for you. Look, I'm not going to go into de in depth. I'm not going to explain it in depth right now. I want it to start to drop an idea that you might think about and ponder. If it's an idea that you want to consider further, then please, let's begin a conversation. 
that Jesus, that his sacrifice, that his death somehow is the beginning of a new life that will last into eternity, a new life that's on offer to you. And because it lasts into eternity, because your life can last into eternity, will give deep meaning and great purpose to your life now. It will mean that you won't waste your life. You won't live it in futility. See, more than anything today, what I want you to do is to stop and to ponder. What is the meaning of your life? What is the purpose to which you are dedicated? Are you just going to live out your days one after the other, pursuing whatever it is, but then dying? And it all comes to nothing. Or will you come and explore, come and discover Jesus? Come and discover this message, this word, this teaching from God that can save you into eternity, that you might live now with meaning and with true purpose. Now, I hope that you will continue through this series as we explore more of these ideas of life under the sun and what God has to say. And I hope that you will, con- that you will pick up the conversation. Send us a note, barneyzingleburn.com forward slash contact. I'd personally love to chat with you. Leave a comment. Right? If you're on Facebook, watching on YouTube, leave a comment just saying, hey, I'd like to talk to someone. I'll get in touch with you. In a little while, maybe in a couple of weeks, we're going to start a course, Christianity Explored, designed to give you an open, easy, accessible, simple view of the very basic teaching of Christianity, this message. Again, let me know you'd be, you want to participate and I'll get you the details. Now, I hope you can join us next week as we uh, consider, again, Ecclesiastes and the teacher talks about money. Money can't buy happiness. Is it true? I hope you'll join us then.